Hello, and welcome to a bonus episode of the Radical Thoughts Podcast. Today I'm interviewing C. Derek Varn. Varn is an educator and an editor for Zero Books. He is a prolific podcaster who has appeared on Pop the Left, which has recently been rebooted on the Zero Books podcast feed, as well as numerous shows on the Emancipation Network. Varn has been influenced by Theodore Adorno, and he provides us a little bit more context and understanding for where Theodore's approach comes from and how we can try and understand it today. Right now you're listening to 22 Ghosts 3 by Nine Inch Nails, but in a second you'll be hearing Varn and I discuss Theodore Adorno, critical theory, and the nature of domination. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Radical Thoughts podcast. Today I'm going to be interviewing C. Derek Varn, who is an educator. He also works with the publishing house Zero Books and has appeared on numerous podcasts, including the Zero Books podcast. Uh, the new Pop the Left has just been rebooted with them, so I'd suggest anyone check that out. Uh, he's also appeared on Regrettable Century and uh, dozens of others. So thank you for joining me. Hey, thank you. Um, and we're here to talk about Theodore Adorno at Frankfurt School. And um, my favorite Adorno text, actually, although I don't think it's the most useful, um, Minima Moralia. Yeah, it's it's hard to put it into any sort of practice, I guess. The the style of it, it it's I think it's it's a there's a good reason why it's probably one that's approached more easily than some of his other more, I guess, what you would call systematic texts. Yeah, it's this one in the authoritarian personality. And then, you know, the collection of essays called the culture industry, where everyone reads that essay where he talks about hating jazz and they misunderstand what he means. Um, so, I mean, one of the things I find fascinating about, about, uh, Adorno is I think if he had seen the, de the development of jazz after the 50s, particularly in the black community, he would not have felt the way about it that he seems to um, when he's writing that essay on jazz. What he seems to be responding to is mass produced big band. Um, and it would be like us complaining about I don't know, um, Creed, um, and not knowing that other rock in the nineties existed. <laughs> um, but I do, I do get the point. I mean, uh, the, well, there's a couple of things you have to deal with with Adorno. He, he is highly Eurocentric. He's highly pessimistic and he is dealing with the fact that the predecessors of his school of thinking um, he sees as not actually understanding the situation like he, he, he seems to think that Marx fundamentally misses something in the analysis of the subjectivity of capitalism that disempowers workers and the reason why he goes there is the experience of high Stalinism, of fascism in Germany, the failure of the German Revolution, the, the, the fact that he did not see 
any of the theoretical predictions of the proletarian revolutions and the core of capitalism, which was what was predicted classically, happen. Um, particularly Germany. Germany was seen as, you know, after Engels, it was seen as both the high point of technological development, but it didn't have the imperial outreach that most of the other capitalist states did. So the prediction that crises would, would affect it faster, which was true, um, would also push the proletariat to revolution there, and that would fully develop the revolution to take over the rest of the, the world because of its particular development in the high point of capital, its particularly um, disciplined and massive proletariat force. And Adorno was trying to to deal with like a question that all Marxists, including most MLs, have tried to deal with for the entirety of the 20th century is why did the, the the proletarian revolutions happen in places where there actually wasn't a a majority proletarian base, All right? So that's part of what's going on there. The other part of what's going on there, you have to read minimum uh, moralia, is that he's really pissed off in the United States. I mean, he, um, you know, he's in LA. He's in he's in like the height of what he sees as the culture industry. He's he's on exile from Germany, escaping fascism, and he is of a mind to see the U.S. as just as authoritarian in some ways as um, Germany and as um, the USSR. And he's trying to parse out how and why that works. Um, one of the frustrations with minimum moralia is it's so dense in reference. Uh, um, so I pointed out uh, off air to you that like the form he's taking is actually a deliberate play on on Nietzsche. In fact, in his dedication to Horkheimer, he calls this the sorrowful science, which is his like inversion of the, the gay, gay science. yeah of the gay science. Um, he um, is also picking up on Aristotle, you know, as to Marx. He is, and picking up on Aristotle is interesting as what he's doing there is he's rejecting the two dominant bourgeois modes of understanding ethics. Um, utilitarianism and deontology to him are flip forms of reasoning. They're, they're in a way, they're instrumental. And the Frankfurt School does what few other have attempted to. I mean, we always talk about the influence of psychoanalysis in the Frankfurt School, but they vary in sociology. They're both an argument against it, but picking up things from it. Um, and you don't really see that in Marxism again until the work of the analytic Marxists like Eric Olin Wright, who start dealing with Weberian categories to explain or intra-class conflict, domination, the appearances of pseudo-classes and strata, um, like like professional managerial class, you know, it's all the rage right now, going back to the Aaron Reich essay. Properly speaking, from a Marxist, from a Marxist conception, it's not a class. Like, what does it reproduce itself? What's its role in the economy? Is it, is it not part of the cycle of economic reproduction? 
Um, is it an ownership? No, it isn't. But Adorno is dealing with the same thing. Those idea of opportunity limits, the idea of dominion affecting subjectification, um, the idea that capitalism really is a totality um, is something that that Adorno is focused on. Um, and so he goes back to virtue ethics, but because of two reasons, one's probably his personal pessimism, but the other is the negative dialectics elements of it. He picks up on Marx and Hegel that dialectics opportunities come entirely negatively. You know, you have to negate the, the prior spirit and then negate the negation, right? And that's how he's operating here. The spirit of dialectics movement in history is, is negative purely. And so since we cannot have, according to this dialectical theory, a meaningful, positive view of life without idealism, he's saying that we need to go, he, you know, he's picking Aristotle as to saying, look, we have to go look at what a good life is when the good life is impossible. Why is it impossible? What does attention mean? Now, since he's also playing around with Nietzsche, he's not doing it systemically here. This is not a work of systemic philosophy. This is a work that's just supposed to pry your brain open. Which is one of the things that we found most interesting but struggled with because there wasn't really a way to talk about it coherently uh, on the episode, particularly jumping from topic to topic that he's bringing up but trying to tie together with his his methodology or, or or way of thinking about it and as you as you were saying like one of the things that's hard with adorno is that he comes from such a rich philosophical background that he's constantly he's not only a he's most famously associated with you know dialectics and hegel but he's drawing on like shelling and stuff even if you're a lay person who knows who hegel is by off chance you're probably not going to know anything about shelling or or these other German philosophers or some of these other thinkers that he's drawing and trying to apply uh, or or reference or or twist in certain ways. Yeah, when I I remember when I read um, the standard translation of negative dialectics. Um, I think it's the Ashton translation, and then I picked up the German. And I was sitting with my friend um, Chuck Robinson, who is uh, uh, I think now he's a professor of literature, but we both speak German and we were going we were going through this and we were just catching all these references that were just dr like were missed in translation and negative dialectics, like because the, the 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 author just didn't know the references. So they got dropped, which makes one of the things reading Adorno really frustrating is is like it's so elusive. It doesn't translate super well. Um you know, that's also true, notoriously true of Hegel, too. I mean, basically in Hegel, everything is like something you have to understand, a pun that is both religious and logical and swabby and dialect of German to get. Um, and it actually makes it harder because of how overrich it is. But I think there's also a tendency to misread Adorno as um, more humanistic than he probably actually is. Um that capitalism as a tort as a totality is, you know, it's actually part of something I critique in Adorno because he, he eventually doesn't seem to see a way out of it. Um, that negative dialectics, the, the pure negative just 
the the you can always find something to to, to kind of get this kind of going wrong. And by the time you get to his, one of his latest essays, Resignation, or his arguments with Marcuse that he had over the emergence of the new left, even though he's highly associated with the new left and highly associated with the cultural turn, he was opposed to it in his life. I mean, he, he basically died after having a breakdown, you know, with, with students messing with him, calling him fascist and making out in his class. I mean... You know, so, so, what what about that is um, unique to Adorno that I find fascinating is like at first I thought that it was a real deviation from Marx, but then I started reading Marx's like polemics on uh, on France. So if you read the Wars in France and the Brumaire, you start seeing these same talk about capitalist regression over and over and over again. Um, uh, you also see it in his fears about the U.S. Civil War, um, about the emergence of slavery as, a, as what he sees as a separate social system within capital that, that is profoundly dangerous. Um, and that's there in Marx. Now, what Adorno doesn't seem to me to pick up on, frankly, is that Marx also, like some more positive stuff like you saw the defeat of slavery as actually a model for the beginnings of the dictatorship of the proletariat and the liberation of like all labor. Um, and you don't get any of that in Adorno, but if read in the historical context of like 19, you know, 1948, it, Adorno's pessimism is actually not as unjustifiable as it may seem like, right. Well, that's I think there there are so many takes, of course, after after World War Two and the uncovery of the Holocaust and stuff like there's a, there's so much literature out there. That's this post-war period where it's this, you know, deep seated pessimism about what's what human nature or whatever. And I kind of mentioned like one of the things that I don't think people really grapple with with Adorno is that when you say like when people see him talking about reason or you were saying beforehand, like people read him as like a a, a primitivist or something. When really what he's talking about is like nobody wants to look at how the culture industry in America already has rooted inside of it a certain kind of logic and tendency, which we can see in fascism as well. And there is no there is absolutely no attempt actually in the post-war period to actually do anything that fundamentally changes the structure of society that already led to what we know as fascism and the Holocaust. Um, and certainly... And you mentioned, you know, Adorno is one of the more legitimate, if sometimes overstated, critiques of him is his his Eurocentrism and stuff. But I think that there have been plenty of ways that people have applied that and being like, okay, yeah, like you can see these logics playing out in, you know, global contexts already in other places and continually too. Or like the the work that you see with people saying, like, why do we focus now on why why is the Holocaust itself become this nationalist? Uh, pinnacle as the one big genocide kind of thing that you sometimes see with like Zionism or whatever like that when it's like that le logic is already playing out and reappearing in other ways. Right. I mean, I, I think one of the things about dialectic of enlightenment that a lot of Marxist both hate and, and like, and I think you do have to have dialectic of enlightenment in your head when you read this, is that 
liberal modernity um, as a conceptual apparatus didn't have to go to way of capitalism. It did. It didn't have to. But there are trends within it and within capitalism that we're already going into Adorno's mind a very problematic place, which is the increased focus on instrumental reason, hiding your values in a universalized notion of reason, um, and those values being very much um, universalizing in a way that cuts against the particularities of people, you know, chews them up and spits them out, and and the universal logic ends up being a bourgeois logic, which further which further and further, you know, pushes the instrumentation of life. And that that produces the modern world, and that has a lot of benefits. Like, it is a dialectic. It is not just bad, but as he says in this book, you know, uh, this book being Minimal Moralia, um, the splinter in your eye is the best magnifying glass. Like, if it, why does the Enlightenment produce the counter-Enlightenment? You know, why does Demestra emerge immediately after the French Revolution? Um, and what makes him different from the prior react, you know, not, you wouldn't even call them reactionary. They're not reacting against anything. The prior ancien regimes of the world. What makes them so different um, is this kind of way instrumental reason, like, reproduces itself, even in myth. I mean, one of the interesting things is, like, the Sorelian turn, if you want to talk about a, a problematic turn in, in the history of socialism, and this Sorelian mythos, what's funny about that is, you know, for all its anti-rationalism, it's actually totally instrumentally rational. Like, and that's one of the things that Adorno is picking up on. And it's not something that Marxism gets you out of, as Sorel should prove to us. Um, now... So that comes into this, but in this book, instead of, you know, highfalutin theoretical stuff, he's basically like, you know, he's in Hotel Grand Abyss land. Um, but the point of this book is to, for you to, like, start seeing the things around you as more problematic than they are, so you can do something about them. It is a critique of everyday life to use, you know, La Fabra. This stuff was in the air before Adorno, and nor was he the only person doing it. Um, he's also trying to offer a more lived-in, almost self-helpy book to counter, like, what he considers as, like, Heideggerian authenticity bullshit, um... You know, empiricism, like the therapeuticness of psychoanalysis, which he sees as just trying to get you to accept a world you shouldn't accept. Like, you know, that's all in here. Um, and also, because it's so overfull, it's very hard to like figure out what the hell the point is. You have to read it in the context of his other work. And, you know, the, the, the big two, the one before it, Dialectic of Might with Horkheimer, and the one after it, Negative Dialectics, are super important to understanding what's actually going on in here. I think the I, I was super interested when we mentioned it, but like I didn't really actually think about it as taking on the self-help format until there was like some essay that I read and gave to the co-host and stuff that like talked about it in the context of like self-help publishing being like a big thing and post-war Germany and and rising um, out of that time. And it, it's kind of ironic. 
I mean, yeah. He's also creaking other Frankfurt schools, Frankfurt school members for this. I mean, this is kind of a this is kind of an issue at from. <laughs> I mean, like, like what? Yeah. Oh, well, because doesn't Fromm takes more seriously like the like psychoanalysis can free your mind kind of thing, doesn't he? Right. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And I mean, Andy, if you read like from on love or whatever, he gets increasingly conventional, you know. Uh, the other thing I think we forget about Adorno is he, don't come, he comes out of a context of a school that had priorly produced people like Heinrich Grossman. And we always think of the Frankfurt School as kind of beginning with Horkheimer and, and Adorno, but it doesn't. All right. Um, now, where I think, you know, some of this falls down, like he I will say the critique that Adorno isn't materialist enough is probably partially true, although I don't think it's because the reason a lot of people say um, this idea that he's only concerned about culture is not really true. He's concerned about the way culture is produced by relations, and those are produced actually by the functioning of the capitalist society. So it's not that he's inverting the, you know, base superstructure analogy in Marxism. He's actually not. He's pretty strict about that. What he, what I can say that he's not, like, perhaps materialist enough is that he really doesn't deal with the effects of ec the, the economics in specific on the individual mind. He deals with it as a totality and pretty much a totality only. So it is a conceptual limitation in which all things are organized as a kind of instrument of maintaining, and thus rationality is subsumed to that. But, like, he's not doing, like, well, why would the... Um, fall of prices in the 30s produce a generation of people who are more given to authoritarianism. He just starts doing stuff like the authoritarian personality and the F scale and not really looking into um, economic or social relational explanatory causes for that. It's kind of the early, uh, some of the problems kind of with the like early Weberian analysis to some extent. Like he's developing exactly. that, that idea that like, you know, well, capitalism also has an inherent uh, logic or drive that so you need to figure out what the incentive that someone has in their mind is to kind of like figure out, which even, you know, which I think Adorno, again, like as you mentioned, the way he thinks in totalities and stuff uh, balances it out somewhat. But it's kind of like even late Max Weber is like, oh, that doesn't make any sense unless you have a strong attempt to understand the already existing social mechanisms and relationships that are determining why you would think that way. You can't just say people think that way. So you have the Protestant spirit or whatever, and that's what's defining the drive in certain capitalist rationalities. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I found super productive about going through Adorno and, you know, I maybe talk about my relationship to him in this book, because this was the first thing I ever read. Um, in fact, I had it back when it had the black cover. Um, do, do you remember that? Um, I've seen, I, I think, you know, like when you Google it, I think that one still comes up. I've never seen a art. I mean, I don't even own a hard copy. I was reading it online, but. Yeah. So the black cover is the, like the first, I think the first run. And then when they re ran all the old radical thinker series, they updated the colors for some reason. And we got the nice brown cover. 
And I don't really know why they're re-releasing it in a second series. Yeah. That's weird to me, but... We're all very confused by that. Um, hell, there's other Adorno that I would rather see, like, released in a, in a mass market, not academic form that's, you know, $50 to buy. Um, but whatever, we're not going to chastise Verso's uh, marketing. <laughs> but... Um, one of the things I think that that uh, that really gets me about this book is um, how it really does point out to you that that there's so many there's a logic of so many things around you that affects your own to use an Aristotelian term teleology like what you think is good is mediated by so many things that are created in capital that it's very hard for you to have anything like a liberated or authentic self. Um, and weirdly, even though, you know, um, I think it's fair to associate the Frankfurt School with the humanist tradition of Marxism, although with the caveat that that also refers to the completely separate Khrushchevite. Yeah. You know, I, I readings. I've complained on on Facebook rants and stuff before how I don't really understand when people just say like, Oh, I'm not a fan of this humanist Marxism. I'm always like, well, it doesn't make sense to me. Like I'm talking about the Frankfurt school and Franz Fanon and the Donayevskaya thought and socialism or barbarism and Ernst Bloch's weird thing. And people from the Soviet union that are liberalized. Like, I don't know. It, I, I always feel like you have to contextualize which thing you're talking about, because even though they interact, they're not really as coherent as I think people treat them as, other than it's like a lot of them, like Hegel, talk about totality and alienation a lot. Yeah, but so the the Stalinist anti the quote unquote anti humanist before Althusser, they like Stalin's total like Stalin's reading of of Marx is highly influenced by Lenin's reading of the science of logic. And it's totally Hegelian. That's why they thought like they had to win, like that it was a historical necessity negated by historical dialectical processes. that No other outcome was even possible. Like, but it's still Hegelian. Like that's, that's the funny thing. Like, I think people assume, I think because of, you know, you've talked about Althusser in your show too, that because of Althusser's association with, with, formal Stalinism, his critique of Khrushchevism, and then his turn to Maoism, that people think that he wasn't also re re reacting to Stalinist Hegelianism, but he was. Like, he, like that was, he thought it did damage to an epistemic theory. Um, but what, yeah, so when we talk about humanist Marxism, it's fair to say that, but, but the thing is, Adorno does think that, by and large... Um, your social life is so mitigated by capital, it might not be determined, but it almost might as well be. Like, that's how pessimistic he is about it. It's not that he doesn't think, you know, agency is possible or that, you know, that everything is contingency as a side note. Um, I'm always fascinated by people who pick up Althusserian anti-humanism and talk about the lack of human agency at all. Um, and then have a very voluntaristic notion of politics because that doesn't make sense. Um, but it's the Maoism, I think. Yeah. It, you know, and it's interesting to me because the other form of humanism, right, 
that you know, Adorno's reacting to existentialist existentialism in the develop the beginning developments of existentialist Marxism. Like he's also reacting to that, like that idea to put it vulgarly, even though I, you know, I do like some things that Sartre and Camus say, but that basically assume all the, the same ontological and epistemological assumptions of Ayn Rand, but make it communist. Like that's, you know, um, Adorno thinks that's undialectical. I mean, and frankly, uh, in Sartre's critique of dialectical reasoning, it it just explicitly is. Um, But Adorno is also engaging with that. Like, that pure human self-agency is so mitigated by the social world and by the totality of production in which that social world is now embedded that you can't meaningfully, like, just choose who you are. You don't really have that freedom. Um, the only freedom that you really have, the only thing that you have true, complete agency over for Adorno is your thoughts. And in that way, he is kind of an idealist. Um, and that, but that doesn't show up fully until late Adorno. You don't really see that until the essay that I mentioned earlier, Resignation. It's not really in Minimal, uh, Minimum Moralia. You see glimmers of it in this kind of work and maybe in just like the form of how he's presenting it, but it's not uh inherently is obvious though he does hammer home the the fact of his conception of uh you know social life being so dominated we appreciated it and said it was much more complicated than people say but there is a reason that there's the joke about the you know did you know it's fascist to open a door like (laughs) yeah kind of thing yeah i mean I mean, and to me, that's a fair critique, frankly. Like, that's a problem with this line of thinking. And the other problem with this line of thinking to me is that it doesn't deal with doesn't deal with a couple of things. I mean, one of the things that it points out about, say, the culturalist turn in proletarian culture, and particularly those who study proletarian culture in the capitalist world as opposed, as opposed to, like, pro-cult, which is really a different thing, or, like, the Council Communist Institute understanding pro-cult, is that by the time that you're talking about proletarian culture and developed commercial consumer society, it is not separate from capitalist production. It's, and that's an objective fact. And people like Raymond Williams, to me, have never completely dealt with that. But what they see, though, is that there is an impact of proletarian taste on that production. It's not like the capitalist totally set the taste vectors. And so dialectically, you'd think it would be like Adorno's opinion on popular culture would be more mixed. But since he's more interested in pure negativism, he's more interested in like avant negations of current artistic fads than he is anything really class-based. And that's another thing I think you can throw at Adorno, is that Adorno is so frustrated by what's happened with the working class in the developed world by the 1950s that he basically sees them as a non-factor. He doesn't see them as a revolutionary subject. He doesn't even talk about them in most of his writings that way. He sees capitalism more as a system. It's something more like you'd see in Moshe Postone. Um, and the, the class agency, even though class conflict is still key to this, like he basically sees the dominion and hegemony. I mean, he doesn't think in terms of hegemony, that's Gramsci, but for, for your listeners, it's a good way to understand it. The, the dominion and instrumental reason, um, from capital itself has pretty much made the class conflict 
a done deal. I mean, you, you kind of get the feeling that Adorno thinks the good guy's lost. Um, and that's why you don't read him talk. I mean, he just doesn't talk about the working class that much. Uh, ben, ben Hamin does, but we don't really see it in Adorno. And um, you get some really... Adorno's relationship to Horkheimer is interesting because Horkheimer's politics do get reactionary. Adorno is more quietistic than Horkheimer. Horkheimer ends up supporting like the American side of the Vietnam War. Because he's so terrified of... Well, it's one of those things where they do they do have the unfortunate tendency of just like starting to call things fascist just all the time, kind of. Right. And so you get so you get this like, oh, the USSR and Chinese blocs are just another form of fascism. So we should support America in Vietnam to prevent the rising tide of red fascism and stuff which I believe is what part of what Horkheimer says right. is his justification. Um, though, yeah, Adorno doesn't really... Adorno just quietly critiques things. Yeah, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't endorse politics like that. I mean, I think... I think in some sense he has kind of just given up the modern world to fascism, period. <laughs> you know, and Horkheimer hasn't. And then Marcuse takes a, you know, Marcuse definitely flirted with Maoism. So it, that, like, that wasn't consistent to the Frankfurt School either. Um, and some of these things that we emerge as like this unified picture of the Frankfurt School. I mean, you know, if you read Martin Jay or even some of the more recent studies on it, you realize it was much more at odds with itself, um, then we tend to understand it. And that, that Adorno probably wasn't the most pessimistic one. It was probably Horkheimer who just, you know, thought that (laughs) red fascism was so dangerous that, you know, whatever, whatever. One of the problems with the Frankfurt school is they don't have a very, they don't have a political economic definition of fascism. Their their definition of fascism is almost phenomenological. Like, it's basically authoritarianism. Um, and I think that leads to a lot of mistakes. Um, like, you know, um, when... Like, even, even, like, the most vulgar Trotskyists can distinguish between fascism and Bonapartism. And it may be fair to say, for example, that... China under Mao was something like red Bonapartism, kind of. Um, but it's completely not fair to call them fascist. That doesn't really make sense. Like they they don't have most of the the national the national mythos. However, to be fair, when you when if you're coming out of the language of watching um, national syndicalism degenerate and the you know the the kind of left tendency of the socialist in Italy to turn into fascism. And you see talk of proletarian nations coming out of China, which I'm not sure, you know, which did happen. I'm not sure that Adorno and Horkheimer knew about it. I could see why that primal trauma would like trigger you because it's the same language that was used by the Italian fascists. They also talked about proletarian nations. So, I think the problem is they just they start treating, you know, it's one of those hammer nail things like they start treating everything as the same, because I also don't think like American dominion of social life is really fascistic. It's something else. Yeah, that's like that's one of those things that I I remember 
watching there's that guy gabriel rockhill and like i think he's actually like pretty smart and he has some interesting stuff to say on like you know the whole cia in post-structuralism thing but he does do that thing where he's like well frankfurt school gets involved in the cia except for marcusa so marcusa is good because he's in the new left um but but he also has one of those things where he just says like oh well fascism is already existing as like a subcurrent strain it's just not like explicit in the u.s or something like that you know like fascism exists for some people but not others is kind of the way that he treats it um so you get that weird like oh fascism is a political system of domination but it's also a mentality and a way that people treat each other or something like that yeah i mean those expansions of fascism as a category are problematic because it leads to stuff like umberto echoes ur fascism in which every i mean literally everything that has a mythic tinge and any authoritarian tendencies at all is fascist except for liberalism but even re- really liberalism is if you think about it like <laughs> like you know the callback to prior liberalisms and whatnot um so yeah so what what other questions do you think that you have from this text like what where do you think your listeners would would need need to be further like explored uh, one thing I did think was interesting, and we talked about it a, a little bit about it, was um, Adorno. You mentioned, you know, with the, like the jazz and stuff, and also near the end of his life during the sixties, uh, when the students movements are happening, and like you know, students like flash him or something, and in class, and he storms out, and um, he he gets generally labeled as kind of like a prude, I guess, mm-hmm. a lot. And I I thought it was interesting how much we talked about how much he talks about like or kind of women's liberation and like sexuality and stuff in Minimum Moralia. Do you know, like, is that something that he talks about all that much more? No. So it's a pretty unique that it just occurs in this. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't come up that much in, um, in negative dialectics or dialectics of enlightenment. It's not that it's not that prominent in aesthetics. I you know, you've read the culture industry collection of essays, right? It's not in there. So if he talks about it more, it's it's going to be in lectures and stuff that aren't readily translated, I guess. Um, one of the things that you notice about him is he does have a nostalgia for, like, early forms of, of um, you could say, like, bourgeois and proletarian families. Um, but he also is highly skeptical of it. And that tension is... I think, I, I think I'm fascinated by that tension because it's fairly honest. Um, well, it's like he has, we didn't talk about it, but there's the early piece on divorce that I thought was actually really pretty darn good where he kind of says like how just the whole way that the family form is encapsulated into this attempt to secure safety and honest relationships and reliance on people. But any sort of like fracturing tension in that that occurs instantly inverts it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you you just get this immense feelings of hostility or tension or all trust becomes mistrust or something like that. Because once that thing that is secure attempt to be secured and stowed away in the capitalist totality has to open up again, 
it, it just doesn't like all of the everything just gets inverted back into these opposite forms. Which, of course, isn't to say that no one can have a good divorce, but I think it's a it's a good an interesting point about the way that, you know, feelings of security get worn down or or broken apart through other tensions. Yeah, I can read I can actually read this because this is when I actually quote this a lot. Um, the whole sober base on which the institution of marriage arises, the husband's barbarous power over the property and work of his wife the no less barbarous sexual oppression that can compel a man to take lifelong responsibility for a woman with whom it once gave him pleasure to sleep, all this crawls into the light from cellars and foundations when the house is demolished. Those who experience the good universal and restrictively belonging to each other are now forced by society to consider themselves scoundrels, no difference from the universal order of unrestricted meanness outside. The universal is revealed in divorce as its particular mark of shame because the particular marriage is in this society unable to realize the true universal. Like that's a, that's a really potent observation that like this breakdown in relations really does, you know, it, it affects you in a way that like, oh, I've been betrayed because this, you know, my, my safety, my way out of the system, the person I don't have to compete with, even though Adorno is completely admitting that the whole institution is based off of male sexual power and social power over men and women. Um, like, you know, he calls it the barber's power over his life's labor. You know, it, it's it's descended literally from, you know, the Roman household model, which is you, you have life and death power over over your children and your sexual subordinates. Um, but that since that was stored away as a kind of refuge from the world in capitalism, it was considered off limits when it breaks down, you know, it's like, oh my God, why have you betrayed me so bad? Um, that's an, that's a keen observation and it's keen in that it, it, it both sees the tragedy of the situation, but also that there's real dominion in the institution itself. So there's a nostalgia for, like, you know, the order of marriage. There's also an admission that the order of marriage itself is barbarous. It's even it's even pre-capitalistically bad in some ways. You know, and that's to me that that belies that the reading of him is just a kind of red, a red social conservative is a strong misreading. Um but it is interesting that he didn't think sexual the sexual liberation movement was going to do much about that. Like, he did not think it was going to free it up. Well, it's like we we talked about how he again, he, ha he has this kind of nostalgia for like uh, the good old days when when you had an affair, but it was because you were just like sexually like enticed by someone or like he has this idea that like kind of you know this kind of romantic yeah like you you just really wanted to sleep with the person and you just really wanted that so that was what drove the affair and now it's all you know sexually open but it's all commoditized or like business transactioning and stuff like that which sounds kind of funny and sounds still like this weird conservatism but he's kind of making an interesting point when you i mean i think that's that's one of the problems with reading adorno today is like he gets framed as just this guy who hates consumption. Right. And he is pissed off about consumption, but he's people don't see why he's talking about it or how he's talking about consumption in a particular way. Um, I was just reading. I've been I have recently got all the end notes shipped to me. So I've been working through those because I hadn't read them before. Um, 
And I just got to volume two where the first two essays, which I think are some of their best stuff, are the like the ones on like the the growth of debt and the housing crisis. And they talk about with like the housing crisis in America, a result of having this early emergence with, you know, GI bills and stuff like that. The the building up of this new contradictory, you know, to use Eric Olin Wright's phrase, the contradictory class of these homeowner people that reinforces again families that own their home and so they need to own all this stuff that they put in their home this drives attention for women to enter the workforce later on as certain forms of debt and stuff are piling up and tensions are occurring so then you have you know every family needs to have two cars every family needs to have uh the children are treated as you know um things that you put on a balance sheet it's, it's kind of i i compared it to um what's the the Italian filmmaker Salo, um, um, Pasolini. Pasolini. When Pasolini, Pasolini also makes this sometimes uh, too easy thing, where he says, you know, oh, post-war Italy, it's all this fascist consumption left over. Which I mean, there's some truth to that because there were a lot of fascists still left over in Italy. But like that particular wave of what's occurring in reindustrialization and growth post-war people don't take that out of context a lot so they think that he's doing something that's kind of like some of the later debord readings where he's just going like oh man there's so much advertising truly we are lost which isn't really what his point point is yeah no his, his point is more i think he's trying to deal with the way exploitation doesn't seem to fully explain everything that's going on within the working class in the modern world. And he's not alone in this, but it it is not actually as vague and under-theorized as, like, Debord's The Spectacle, you know, which is a very liberating book when you first read it and then you think about it for five minutes and try to figure out what the spectacle actually really is and you have no idea. Um, I don't think that's actually true with Adorno. I think the, the mechanisms are actually somewhat clear. You know, the cultural industry, in a way, produces, to use words from Gramsci and Altrasser, things like hegemony, things like ideology. And it doesn't even need to do it consciously. It is actually doing it because of the instrumental reason of selling more. But the effect is standardization. The effect is um, numbing. The effect is social social totality. The effect is identification and the use of identity subjugating yourself to an identity as you know Adorno says in negative dialectics and identification for him is is something much bigger than like identity politics that's not what he's talking about identification is like I have a part I have been I have a specific role now that role is X that is a social role that is an economic role you know and these other variables these other you know, experiences will get read into that. But the the form of ideology itself is the identification with this thing um, and with this role. And that freedom, you know, one of the things about that Adorno takes seriously about Marxism, I think, is class abolition really is the goal. Because it's not just that the working class have to lead the way. They have to lead the way 
and abolish class itself. And Adorno has not seen that happen. I mean, in a, in, a, in a key way, it does rhyme with modern communization thinkers or even, frankly, Maoists who struggle with the same thing and came up with theories like, like you know, worldwide labor aristocracy and first, second, third nations rules. That's what that's I mean, it's actually trying to answer the same question. Yeah, it's I mean, you even see that. Like again, you you made the point when he's talking about identity, he's not talking about identity politics. But it is interesting how you can see that tension even on the level of what we would see as more cultural or um, particular social identities in the form of gender or race, where you constantly see you constantly see that contradiction of you know academic uh, theories and stuff that talk about abolishing certain forms of identity or whatever that often feed back into social tendencies to reaffirm or just construct identifiers or things like that um which i'm i'm not trying to make like a big critique or something with that i just think that you can identify that kind of tendency or i think it's also like you were saying with like the culture industry not necessarily being a conscious thing is like you know the it, it's both possible to say that there's a lot of pop music for example, that does interesting things, that has interesting instrumentation, that has a lot of work that goes into it. Like you can look at the number of tracks in a thing and it'll be in a, you know, there's so much recording going on, so much stuff. But then when you, when you like look at it, it's like, okay, let's look at the time signatures. Let's look at where the breakdowns happen and the things and this and that. There's still a formulization that is constantly occurring, even if it's not being sat down and thought out in that particular way. Um, right. Which is, I think, like a like and, I, and you see that, too, with like the like movies and stuff like you can have like a really good like there are movies that go to the Oscars that I like and I saw it. And I went, that was a good movie. And I can still be like it still follows the tendency of every other thing in this genre for the last 10 years or whatever. And then at the and then it degrades into the latest Star Wars or what have you. Um uh, uh shit. What well, I was gonna ask you something following up with this. Um. Uh. Well, I guess one one thing that we kind of touched on, and I know you've mentioned it before, and it might be good for listeners to hear more about, is like, uh, we mentioned it briefly, but how Adorno. There's a weird tendency for people to think like Adorno and the Frankfurt School are like too Heideggerian despite the fact that Adorno completely sees his project as opposed to Heidegger. And I don't know if that's maybe because of Benjamin or something. I think it's actually Marcuse because Marcuse tries to have the, the Heideggerian, the Heideggerian synthesis. And that very much informs like the one dimensional man and this idea of authenticity. But, you know, by the late seventies, I think Marcuse has even moved away from a lot of that because of his, he he. By the time that Ador, like Adorno's been dead for ten years, if you like see late Marcuse interviews, he's not as sanguine on the New Left, which he participated in. But the reason why he participated in that New Left was his idea that their radical authenticity, their be you know, their multidimensionality would help them out. And Adorno, you know, Adorno's actually a much, I think, a much more insightful thinker on this. That authenticity is not an out; it's not real. Like. Like, you might have a biological being. I think he does actually talk about that. But it's so socially mitigated, a la Marx. Marx thought the same thing. Um, that 
it's almost meaningless to talk about. It's not that there is no human nature. It's that the human nature is so mitigated that you can't talk about it consistently. Yeah, but I think I think it might be in Marcuse's later. I think it's counter revolution and revolt. Maybe he has some pretty he has some pretty clear stuff where he's like, yeah, I wasn't like, you know, that didn't solidify the way that he wanted it. Right. Kind of he re he reveals that he had some kind of even then misgivings and critiques about certain things that he thought could maybe get overcome, but didn't. Um, but yeah, you can see that tension in like um, when at the end of his life, Adorno is writing Marcuse letters about the new left. And like some of it is, it sounds like some of the same pot shots he took at Heidegger. I know there are a, a, some modern liberal uh, humanity scholars who think that, um, that Adorno secretly respected Heidegger or something. And that really who, who he's taking offense to is Heideggerians. And he's really arguing with people like Arendt and other German thinkers that we don't so much deal with in English, but I, I don't think so. I think he's clearly aiming at Heidegger. I think the, the political context is pretty clear. Um, although in jargon of authenticity, which is the book that's really the clearest one, this anti-Heideggerian, he doesn't actually quote Heidegger directly all that much he does quote most quote heideggerians but yeah you see it in the correspondence though with benjamin as well because adorno critiques benjamin sometimes when he gets into into his mystical stuff or uh some of his like um stuff in the arcades project he'll be like you're being too heideggerian that's bad right have you don't don't touch that have you uh read the the letters between uh benjamin um Gersh, uh, Gershon Slocum and uh, Slocum and um, Adorno. Uh, I I've read certain selections just in uh, like bio biographical pieces, but I I, I know I, there is like a collection. I think there is, yeah there there is a certain amount of debate over how you know how much of that uh like negative theological redemption narrative is actually in adorno i i've read it even on the wikipedia page it says it's in minimum moralia and i have a hard time with that i mean adorno is interesting in that um i mean he changed his name to identify more with the jewish side of his family actively but he, technically speaking halakhically speaking he's not a jew um or, excuse me, he changed his name to identify him with the Catholic side of his family actively to protect himself. But, halakhically speaking, he's not a Jew. He was only a Jew under German law. So I don't know how much Jewish thinking actually affects him. Um, clearly, he was in dialogue with a bunch of Jewish, you know, um, scholars. But I don't know, like, it does seem to be in popular interpretation that he, that, like, he's part of the, the, like, the Jewish mystical current of... Of of Marxism, but I don't know that I see it like at all. Yeah, I I, I wouldn't. I I haven't really seen much that makes me think that. I think he does have, like I remember. I think Frederick Jameson's you know late Marxism, which is his most direct engagement with Ardorno, does a pretty good job at some of the genealogy of being like, here's the stuff that he's picking up from Benjamin early on, and then later developing after Benjamin dies. Um, so I think you can see, like, I think that Adorno does have an interest in the concept of redemption through the way he talks about negation and 
the abolition of class and mm-hmm. entirely in that kind of stuff. And, you, you know, he talks about, like, um, Ernst Bloch being, like, the only person who ever talked about utopia in a dignified way or something. Right. Even though he also, again, in letters to Benjamin, he also is like, Ernst Bloch is the most idealist dumbass I've ever met, <laughs> like, and stuff like that. And he's also, Ernst Bloch was too friendly with uh, the Stalinists and things. But, uh, like, yeah, I've never seen anything that makes me think that he was super in, like, really drawing on jewish uh mysticism or theology heavily for his his theoretical yeah you know foundation me neither explicitly unless you think that like marx was somehow i mean yeah. like um yeah it, the, because the the messianism like there's no messianic figure in adorno there's no, not, there's no messianic force. As anything, I mean, like I said, one of the critiques you make of Adorno is he takes the revolutionary subject out of Marxism. Like that, and that's a serious critique. I mean, like he's not even searching for it, really. He's more trying to explain why it isn't there. Um, and so he's assuming that it's not there. And then it's not a timescale problem or some kind of political economic distortion or class consciousness not arising the right way or whatever. Um... He also doesn't think that just pointing out, I mean, interestingly, given how negative, um, you know, minimum moralia is, but he also rejects, um, you know, social realism, as I think you discussed in your episode, um, because he sees it as, as in some ways he's like a, a precursor to like a, the, um, the more vulgarized form of this, as socialism ends up being you know, capitalist realism, it diminishes your horizons of opportunity. Like, it's really easy to be cynical about capital and yet not actually, and like, just kind of see it as a natural way of life, that life just kind of is that way. Um, now, to me, that that's not consistent, like that, that damning critique of um, socialism is not actually consistent with like Marxist aesthetic, because Marx really liked he actually specifically liked reactionary social realist work because it said it was better at actually portraying classes the way they were, as opposed to the 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 social realists in America who were actively, you know, proto-socialist or whatever, or early utopian socialist who romanticized um, oppressed and working classes. But it still seems that like Adorno thinks, no, like you need radically, you need a radical break in art. And in an interesting way, you can almost see this as like a a blind spot in his own totalizing analysis, because he doesn't seem to think that stuff can be commodified in the same way. Yet it clearly is like, right. Like, you know, Ornette Coleman's, you know, to, to use jazz for a second, Ornette Coleman's, you know, interventions with free jazz, you know, enable a whole lot of new commercial pop music to arise. Um, Prokopiev and, you know, Schoenberg and all the, the people that Adorno really loved actually have mm-hmm. a major influence on how we score film, you know? Right. <laughs> you know, the, and so in some ways, he's not cynical enough about art. I'm, I'm glad we, we uh, touched on that because I just realized that was what I was going to, that was the thing that I forgot to ask you that I was going to ask you about is his, how he views, you know, avant-garde art in relation to, and in opposition to the culture industry because I think a lot of people get confused by that and why he, why he likes it the way that he does. Um, 
And also, I mean, like we mentioned also, like sometimes you can read stuff where he's like saying like, man, Orson Welles, that's just the pinnacle of culture industry stuff. Charlie Chaplin is really cool. <laughs> and he he does like good work, which which I mean, I, I, I like both those filmmakers, but it is it, it can be hard to figure out exactly what he's like. I, I think also with like music, he actually has like an actual like criteria for how he views like you know, he's got all this like actual music theory about like composition and stuff, which a layperson can't really like just look at and be like, oh, so that's what he's saying, you know? Um, yeah, there's a lot of musicology. There's a lot of influence from Nietzsche because Nietzsche was also kind of a backdoor musicologist. Um, I mean, one of the things that like one thing I can say that I think why why a lot of people think the Frankfurt School maybe had a Garian other than Marcuse and a little bit Benjamin is uh, Benjamin is um, is that uh, there's so much Nietzsche in in Adorno in specific, um, and Adorno seems to look at Nietzsche as like the paradigmatic anti-capitalist reactionary. Um, but he is a reactionary, but he's also pulling on him because of Nietzsche's innovations and aesthetics and stuff like that. And I do wonder how much that affects Adorno's thought in specific and in, in musicology. And like I said, it affects the form of this book. Like this book is specifically written. It's the only book written this way. He wrote it for Horkheimer when, you know, it, it is it is half a diary, but it's also specifically styled this way to mirror Nietzschean kind of you know, thinking. And, and in a way, if you think of Nietzsche as like the anti-systematizer and you think of he Hegel as the ultimate systematizer, this is even a dialectical form for Adorno. Like, that, putting these two things that cannot mesh together to break them both open is part of what he's trying to do here. And that's hinted at but in his preface when he talks about Korkheimer and what, what, why he says, like, this isn't properly speaking and can't be a work of philosophy. Aphorisms are not made for it. But, you know, if we look at what it means to be the good life, perhaps aphorisms are useful for this because they can break things open. With it just wrapping up on, like, the talk of the relationship to Heidegger and stuff, I, I also always think when I'm reading about people trying to respond to or interact with Nietzsche in some way, it's, it's kind of, to me, like, how sometimes when people are responding to Stalinism, there's still an implicit acceptance of certain terms or things that could have been contested also. I don't know. Like, like it's like once you're just in that milieu of that time with that conversation, certain ways of expression or things just get kind of all appear. And also he's German, too. So he's writing in certain like he uses archaic German and stuff as expressions. and things. Right. Like that. So I think that sometimes that kind of like once it, like because Heidegger grounds so much of our understanding of the conversations of that time, anyone engaging with him critically or otherwise can appear as if they're talking on his terms, kind of. Yeah. Uh, although, I mean, it's not, you don't, you don't see talks of, of sign and dasein in, in Adorno. Like, right. there's no talk of being. But, yeah, I mean, I actually, I mean, one of the things that I find hilarious is the amount of people who bring in ontology <laughs> into Marxism and then complain about Hadegarian influences. I was like, um, ont like ontology is, a, is basically a metaphysics question. Like it's not, 
Yeah. You know, or, or it's a phenomenological question. It's not, uh, it's not properly speaking a Marxist question. But, um, and, and that's because of the influence of Heidegger on the way we speak in academia. Um, we can't get out of our own use. But I, I also think you're right that there's a certain, and maybe this is part of what's affecting some of the limits of Adorno and like practical use is that there are so many different discourses he's trying to explain and figure out why they're going the way they're going, why, why things are going so poorly in the Soviet Union, why things are going so poorly in America, why things, I mean, from the, from the Marxist standpoint, um, why things went so poorly in Germany is he, he, he's maybe conflating all of these conversations into one thing. I think about the, the, anti, the Marxist turned anti-Marxist uh, Kolakowski, who... Who I, you know, I think everybody, every Marxist should read um, the main currents of Marxism, even though it's an anti-Marxist tract, or it becomes an anti-Marxist tract about one third of the way in. Um, is that you realize what a, anti, a Stalinist anti-Stalinist thinks? Because Kolakowski's interpretation of Marx um, is actually is. is kind of retrograde retrofitted from from his interpretation of you know um brezhnevism and stalinism so he's actually you know kind of going to marx with that eye to figure out how how a to b but in doing so like limits readings limits interpretation drops stuff out drops different you know tendencies out it doesn't try to explain when something's instrumental strategic or essential like and that's because of the debate he's engaging with like he's coming out of late period Brezhnevian like quasi-Stalinism and that's affecting his reading of I mean it's affecting his reading of things all the way back to Plotinus um and so you do have to read Adorno in the context of the 1940s and 50s and to some degree the early 60s he's not even really someone who you can read the new left through even though he's so influential upon it um, because he's not writing about that. Like, he's done. I mean, he's practically dead by the time the New Left really develops. So, you know, you have to read him in the concerns of, of what brought him into Marxism and the concerns of being shattered by how bad, you know, how bad fascism actually was. I mean, he seems, he seems sincerely surprised that it could have gone that bad. Um. Yeah, in the in minimum moralia, he talks about because it's divided into several sections of periods, mm -hmm. you know, and he talks about like the early stuff that he's writing, nineteen, you know, forty three or something. I don't remember exactly when, and he's kind of saying like even some of these assumptions where I'm talking about how bad things are, I did not have a conception of what we uncovered in the the death camps that would later frame my other stuff like like and so like even even then he's saying like as much of a pessimist as i was i still got more blackpilled by things to come you know yeah and i think we have to we have to read a lot of these marxist thinkers in that context um we also have to, I mean, you do have to do with the fact that the predecessor to the CIA brought the Frankfurt School in partly to piss off Hitler. 
Um, and people do see that as like it's an anti-Stalinist, uh, you know, counterpilling, and maybe that was part of it. But you must also remember that technically we were allies with the Soviet Union at the time. Yeah. So like, and we were, you know, we went from anti-Soviet messages being promoted by the U.S. government in movies to weirdly quasi-pro-Soviet messages being promoted. Like, it's a very strange time in popular cinema. Um, and, you know, so, like, the idea that it was solely to, like, like, I remember Martin Jay talking about, you know, Frank for School conspiracy theories and, like, Castro in his heyday talking about one that made me laugh that, you know, that basically Judeo Bolshevism was trying to undermine the national, like, the international revolution. Um, and it was a plot by the proto CIA to do this, the OSS or whatever. Yeah. Um, or the OSI. I always get that acronym convoluted but yeah and you know I, I don't think it's I think the context of this is interesting I mean one of the things that you do have to study is like the 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 the, the proto CIA and the CIA's actual use of culture stuff um weirdly to like play both sides like they would like promote avant-garde art and then promote anti-avant like an, like then have promote groups that called that art communist like <laughs> like um, the CA the CA has always been strategically diversified um, but in a very real sense like th there is some culpability there um, and the debate also that they're having with sociology and the development of sociology and what sociology is good for is fascinating um like one of the things you can see the Frankfurt School as is both a an attempt to synthesize some of the techniques and information both um, into the Hegelian Marxist tradition of sociology, but also eminently critique it at the same time. Um, I mean, uh, you can see this in like, you know, what's that essay? Um, capitalism or late industrial society or whatever, uh, you know, and when Adorno is like actually critiquing, you know, certain conservative elements of bourgeois sociology. But um, from from the Frankfurt School perspective and from like actually from kind of classical Marxism, not everything bourgeois is inherently bad. It's just inherently bourgeois. And so what they're trying to understand is regression. And like you can some you could kind of see the entirety of the Frankfurt School coming out of the line of thought that's really articulated in Brumaire and the Brumaire, which is why is this regression happening? Why does why does even the progressive forces of capitalism turn on themselves? And you see that in like, you know, the second and third chapters of, of the Brumaire by Marx. But um you can kind of see like in a way the entire career of the middle Frankfurt School is a footnote to that and trying to really develop out why it is in a theoretically complete manner in specific to Germany, in specific to what happens during and after World War II. One, one thing that might be clarifying for some listeners, I guess, uh, we've mentioned, you know, the, the idea that the Frankfurt School is really interested in the question of domination and that both enriches a lot of their stuff but also leaves behind certain things re regarding how class is actually formed and the role of the economy and like you mentioned uh kind of losing any sense of revolutionary subjectivity 
altogether. But um, I mean, how how do you usually distinguish between exploitation, domination, oppression, which is, I think, you know, again, like Aaron Olin, right, like kind of divides it in that way. And how would you do you think that there's a coherent way of talking about those three or a way of showing how the Frankfurt School conceives of this? Or fails to conceive of this? I think the Frankfurt School starts seeing domination everywhere and starts discounting the role of exploitation and oppression. Like, that's, I think, part of why Horkheimer doesn't really see any legitimacy and to say, or not much legitimacy to say Vietnamese national independence. It's not solely because he's some kind of European nationalist. I mean, he was, you know, from a subjugated group himself. It's more that he's not thinking about oppression as a motivating factor, not in that way. Um, so they start looking at the way, you know, systems emerge and the totality emerges in a Hegelian sense. Um, and they start trying to deal with things as they're functioning and their limits on the mind and their limits on the human subject and explaining why people would ever willingly accept something like fascism. That leads them to focus on domination almost solely. Um, now, how I parse this, I actually use Eric and Wright's division of this and understanding class, which was his revision of his earlier work on class. His earlier work on class actually talks about domination as a separate form of exploitation that isn't explained by economic relations. But then he realizes that muddles up Marxist categories. Now, as a side note, Eric Owen Wright doesn't accept labor theory of value, so some of the ways he talks about exploitation to me don't make sense. But um, the idea that social dominion, limits of opportunity within a class, dominion of who's telling you what to do as opposed to who owns your labor, um, really does affect how you experience. It affects the subjectivity of everyday life. It's why you hate your boss more than your owner. And most people really do, even though their boss is not why they're there. Your manager more than... Yeah, your manager more than your... Like, I mean, when I worked for a, for a major corporation, like, I didn't hate Warren Buffett. And I didn't hate my middle manager, but there were some managers whose guts I really hated, and that's because they dominated my life. They explicitly limited what I could and could not do. So domination is about, you know, the way you are limited within your day-to-day -day life. Like, a lot of male-female relations, um, historically speaking, are really relations of domination. Oppression is a legal category, I think, uh, or an extra or a quasi-legal category. Like, it's about the relationship between kinds of people within nation-states. It's not an immediate relationship of domination. It's kind of an abstractified relationship of domination. Um... So, like, Afri um, African slaves and African Americans are oppressed because there are both legal and extra-legal categories which make them a separate category in the system. Now, the Frankfurt School does deal with that in their identification um, theories, particularly negative dialectics, but they don't really deal with it on, like, a, a between-nations way, Um Part of the problem is, frankly, I think Marxism kind of has its cake and eats it, too, on, on national liberation. Like, it's national liberation is something we have a hard time dealing with because of the problems that it produced in the Soviet Union, and I'll talk about why. Stalin always had an issue with Lenin's answer to the national question because he thought there was no way to fairly parse who was a legitimate or illegitimate nation. 
And that would lead to reactionary nativist critiques within the system. His answer to that was the same answer as the liberal answer to it was, which is you see, you know, um, best expressed in Mexico by Benito Juarez, where you have the indigenous leader being the person who most suppresses and most Europeanizes the indigenous of the area. That's not, you know, it's not unique to Benito Juarez, but you see that all throughout history. That is an attempt to say, okay, look, our way of life, we have to bring in this new way of life. Um, I'm just going to force you to accept it. And so you will exist as a physical, biological person, but your way of life will be gone. But that's actually probably better for you. And that's the answer Stalin comes to. But that's an imperialist answer. That's, you know, we, you know that's really, a re from the Marxist perspective, that's kind of a reversion back to the, you know, pro, the pro-imperialism of the First International. <laughs> However, one of the things you have to remember about the First International is a lot of the groups in the First International were full of working men who were explicitly nationalists. I mean, like, the Italian nationalists are part of this, the national unification. It's why Marx is, you know, initially in alignment with Bakunin and with Wagner, of all people, you know, the hyper-reactionary. Um, and I think after 1848, that comp like, even for Marx, that gets more complicated. Like, he gets more... He gets more understanding of anti-colonial um, defenses and, and slightly incoherent about, about where bourgeois nationalism actually plays in the development of socialism. And, like, you know, once you get to the, the critique of the Goethe program, uh, um, it's unclear to me, like, if Mar Marx clearly doesn't think nations are even going to be really all that— particularly nation-states as a bourgeois form, are really going to be all that relevant. Um, so the Frankfurt School ambiguity on that is, is kind of leaning into one side of the whole argument there. And it's one because Marxists kind of take oppression as a given. Like, we understand, like that's, a, that's a category that, that's understood in liberalism. Um, exploitation is, is where Marx really innovates. And tries to explain, you know, exploitation has to do with man's alienation from his labor and then the fetishization of that labor through increasing forms that mediate you socially, right? And also how exploitation can occur without it being some sort of, you know, sense of injustice or wrongness in the social form itself and things like that. As right. Well. I mean, Marx was basically aiming to answer the question, like... Like, for example, Aristotle couldn't figure out why anyone would ever exchange anything and why markets would ever exist, because because um, why would you change like for like and, and somehow make money? That, that makes sense. That's an irrational enterprise. Well, what Marx proves is under capitalist conditions, you don't change like for like. Like you have hit through the mediation of 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 markets, of wage labor, of all this, you've actually hidden the difference and thus taken a share away. That's how you make profits. Otherwise, capitalism isn't a rational enterprise. Um, now, okay, so that's what Marx explains. But Marx doesn't really deal. I mean, Marx talks about, in his polemics, he talks about domination all the time. He, you know, talks about dictatorships of class, dictatorships of particular people, dictatorships of countries. Like, he, he understands that domination exists in the world, but he doesn't theorize it. Um, I think Eric Olin Wright really gets into the kind of phenomenal experience we have of interclass conflict, intra-class conflict. Like, like the, the way that, for example, 
like a um, a steel worker may resent an office worker, even though they're both actually workers. Um, now, I also think adding Dominion into that clarifies stuff like opportunity limit limits, status competition, intra class, because not all, like status competition is not just between classes. It's also within classes. You have status within your class. Um and and stuff like that it explains consumption patterns it explains like exactly why you hate your boss or why you hate the academic more than you hate the people who actually set up the society um it explains a lot of that very clearly um where i think eric and wright falls down is he just is he doesn't accept labor theory of value and i do so um and also j- j- just kind of ends up going it's so complicated we can't have a revolution right we can only have reforms so we need to and we can have real utopia or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is it becomes a Bernsteinist argument, basically, as most analytic Marxism ultimately does. Um, but you're not you're not interviewing me on my other pet topic, which is analytical Marxism. <laughs> so um, but yeah, this is how I did think. It. And I think I think the point where the analytical Marxists and actually the Frankfurt School come into agreement as they're both picking up Weber. And they're both trying to deal with... Because Weber's innovations and kinds of reasoning, instrumental, you know, intrinsic, these these different kinds of logics are super important and clarify some things that, like, the faith and ur reason that you see in the Enlightenment isn't justifiable. Like, you couldn't... You know, what... One of the things that you have to ask people, like I used to deal with new atheists, right? And this Weberian intervention made me understand, like reason for a lot of these people becomes an empty sign for whatever I want to do and how I just formalize it. That's really all it is. That's that. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've encountered that myself. And, and to be to be fair, I've probably used it myself, just that kind of like you know, well, you're not, you know, well, oh, or there's the kind of like inversion of it, which is post-structuralism, but where it's just like, well, you're being too reasonable and I'm being appropriately irrational. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, there's, yeah, just that kind of like, you just use the term like, oh, well, you're not really thinking through this, but I'm not going to explain what you should be looking at or thinking about. Right. Um, kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So I tend to, I tend to think that Weberian intervention is really important, but it also is limiting because Weber doesn't really think like there's anything beyond capital that we can do, at least at least not not deliberately. I mean, Weber would see something if something develops beyond capital, it would be from internal tendencies that kind of stochastically lead to a new social order. Right. Um and Durkheimian sociology is also is all about you know maintaining social homeostasis. So, you know that's not particularly true either. Do the I was going to ask you: Do the Frankfurt School ever really deal with Durkheim? I know that funnily enough, the Bataille group gets like really into Durkheim, but yeah, it's because the on suicide essay is why the Bataille group gets and and the gift yeah I like the gift too. That's that's yeah, that's the general tendency in Durkheim and like socialism is they just go, uh, well, we can't actually like figure this out, but gifts are cool and those aren't capitalist. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, Durkheimian Durkheim is is uh, 
Durkheim just saw himself as somewhere, you know, trying to explain the way societies would maintain homeostasis and how they do it. Um, it does come up in negative dialectics, actually. Like, there are discussions of Durkheim in that book. Um, but they're not as extensive. They don't, they, like, honestly, the Frankfurt School is using Viberian and Marxist conceptions to critique that more than pick it up. Um, you know, they... they I mean, the other thing is, like, Durkheim to me is fascinating. I think On Suicide is actually a very interesting book. Um, empirically wrong from modern sciences on some things, but but fascinating. The studies on gift on gift um, economies, I mean, Bataille's weird, like, Durkheim plus antique forms plus I'm... Plus, I'm going to incorporate Soviet Marxism, but do it in this weirdly primitive cult way, like... Um, I mean, I wish people would actually like do more studies on trying to make sense of the economics behind Bataille socialism, because um, I I think there might be something there, but I'm not quite sure what. Um, but in general, like it's a critique of Dokamian sociology, and like Weber is kind of an intermediary figure which they can use to. I think they're trying to explain some larger things that they need Vivian categories for about how the logic of the Enlightenment went, you know, went sour. But as you can say, like, it's not that Adorno doesn't have an economic analysis. He does. He thinks, like, the industry produces this. But it's not a very empirical economic analysis because he's also fighting against, and I don't think I've mentioned this, vulgar empiricism and positivism. So he's trying not to go there. And he's afraid that Marxists have been too conciliatory to positivist in the past. And that's undialectical. So... I do know... I, I think... I think I was reading something by Bernard Bonefield, who, if I remember correctly, was taught by one of the Frankfurt School. You have to, be, yeah, you have to be careful. People taught by the Frankfurt School. Other luminaries of people taught by the Frankfurt School include um, Gottfried uh, and Hans Hermann Hoppe. Yeah. So, yeah, so, um, you know, I, I just, arch reactionaries. Yeah, so. I was just reading Bonefield because I thought it was interesting that I didn't realize that there's the like there's technically like two value form traditions, right? Like, and he's like the kind of more slightly more on the economists part, um, and like class struggle part. But he 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 started out talking about Adorno's conceptions, and he kind of he kind of says that he's like, yeah, Adorno never really has like a strict economic like science per se. But he has enough of a conception of economics and how it works that he can make insights into what's going on, though he never directly really or even when he directly talks about it, it's not based on the grounding of a like how things are operating in the economic analysis. He's just talking generally. Um, right. He he basically views that as someone else's job. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, Which, you know, I mean, to be fair, sometimes <laughs> I think there are some cranks who I like on other topics, but I'm like, yeah, this part you need to, like, let the professionals handle a bit more. Yeah, I've often said that about some communizers who I won't name in specifically, but I'm just like, why? Wait, why don't you actually look at what economists say on this? But um but in general, I think that that's kind of what what it is, is it, he, it's not that he's anti-economic. It's just not his field of study. So he's not writing about that. Um, I, I do see him as taking up 
Lenin's injunction um, before Procult to really understand the classes and their sensuous modes of life, which also inspired Gramsci. I mean, like, people think that that cultural turn came out of nowhere, um, and it didn't. It comes from Lenin saying you have to understand the way the classes live empirically and study it. Um, that led to Procult trying to come up with an alternate proletarian form of everything, proletarian ethics, proletarian culture, um... Which, you know, as the left communist of the 70s point out, kind of reifies workerism, actually, in a weird way. It's not truly class abolitionist. It's it's like class subsumption. But in another way, you can see why that impulse is there, because you do need to sociologically, sensuously understand the classes to understand how they really operate even in a superstructural form, because even if you assume that, and, and the thing is, I think Adorno does assume basically the base sets everything up. It's other people's job to figure out how the base works. Like that's just not his job, but he does have a rough understanding of like exploitation. I mean, that even comes up in minimal morality as much as we talk about, he doesn't really talk about the working class as a revolutionary subject. He does talk about the working class as this experience within capitalism in a way that does undergird like culture being a product that is produced on an industrial scale of which someone is profiting. And it, you know, it's kind of a very rough Marxist heuristic of economics. Um, well, we're at an hour and a half. So what would be your main points? Like if someone was like, okay, I've decided after listening to this that I'm going to try and read Adorno and get something out of it. Like, do you have any particular thoughts about, like, what Adorno has done that has influenced your analysis or that you think are productive things to look for when reading Adorno or even just where to start and stuff? Um, I, I would start with Minimum Moralia because, believe it or not, as opaque as it is and as wide-varying is, is actually probably the most inviting of them. Um, and you can get it for cheap. Yeah, it's, it's nice and cheap. I, I would say Dialectic of Enlightenment is fascinating, although there's a couple of things. You don't assume that Horkheimer and Adorno are exactly... I mean, they kind of have a Marx-Ingles relationship, but they're, they're pretty close, and they endorse each other's stuff, but they don't exactly think the exact same thing. Um, they're not just, you know, automatic extensions of each other. Um, I would also say negative dialectics, but... I would give it with the caveat that the the currently available translation is not great. And actually, there are some Internet translations that are better. Um, so, you know, and do you know if the there's that there's the released like lectures on negative dialectics? Yeah, I haven't looked at it. Do you know if that's I'm actually going through it right now? I mean, his, his lectures on dialectics and negative dialectics. Um, uh, I have that and his lectures on aesthetics. I think if you're interested in Adorno, those are interesting, but I would not start there. Um, the one thing I will say as a caveat, though, is Adorno can blackpill the shit out of you. Like, I understand why why so many Frankfurt schoolers and, um, uh, and why a lot of reactionaries. I mean, like, famously, Richard Spencer wrote his master's thesis on Adorno. Um, and actually does not, it, not just in the, oh, scary Judaic Bolshevik cultural Marxist conspiracy, like, like Spencer actually is slightly smarter than that, even for a dumbass Nazi. Um, I can see why if you do not 
add economy back into this and remember that he does think that there at least in the time of minimum moralia that there is a way out by looking at how bad things can be so that you're not deluded by how good things seem like that's what you need to take away if you take a, if you go into the pure uh, domineering totality that everything's fascist because every because capitalism is always in regression and capitalism and regression is fascist you'll you'll end up blackpilled and you may end up even like like doing you know pulling the whole uh <laughs> the whole journey of many a reactionary who started off as a Marxist who goes, if I can't beat them, I might as well join the bad side. <laughs> I mean, so I think there's a real risk there. And I also think like, or you become a, primitive. yeah, or you can become a primitist. Yeah. Like you become a Zerzanite. I think, um, for me where Adorno is useful is the subjectivity and phenomenology that we feel in consumer forms of capitalism particularly after Keynesianism and World War II. Um, but I also think that we see more breakdowns now. We see the system breaking down more, and has there's more gaps now than there was when Adorno was writing. You can see, I mean, I think you can see it everywhere. Um, I also think, as another warning, um, classic, like capitalism exists because someone profits for it. It doesn't exist as a self-emergent logic in space. Like it's a logic that exists because somebody is able to maintain power through its maintenance. And if you start viewing capitalism as this system that emerges and exists as an abstract system in the way that sometimes Adorno's totality talk can lead you, I think you can you can go in all kinds of problematic directions. I mean, like, I respect Moshe Postone, but I do wonder, you know, um, about the effect of removing revolutionary agency from a class and putting it into a system, what that does to Marxism. It makes, it does actually make it, in a way that even Althusserianism doesn't, really anti-human. Like, like I could see how you could take this and go not just primitivist, but maybe like Nick Landian red accelerationist with like Cthulhu beast. I mean, like you can go in very weird ways if you do not add classical, you know, um, political economy back into it. And, you know, I would and I would tell people also, you do need to take seriously the critiques of imperialism um, and Marxist historiography, and they're going to cut against some of this. I mean, you have to deal with the Brenner debate. You have to deal with world systems theory, none of which are, strictly speaking, purely Marxist. Um, but you do have to see where this stuff, even if you disagree with it, like, like I don't agree with a lot of the suppositions of world systems theory, but I think it's incredibly fruitful to, to work out what it says about um, how you can abstract core periphery relations and whatnot. Um, I, I don't agree with every supposition of, of political Marxism. Like, I don't. I think in some ways it's almost, it's, uh, it distorts some, the, the way capitalism is a, is, a, is a world system that emerges in time. Um, even though I think the the um, political economy um, the political Marxists have a really good grasp on how um, 
capitalism emerged in specific from a specific time and place and, you know, was able to expand throughout the world. Um, so I just say, like, if you stop with Adorno, if you, you're, it's not going to be that useful to you. You have to read it in the context of a thousand other things that have happened since then. Um, and I also think Adorno actually does have a rather undialectical view of the Soviet Union, even though he doesn't talk about it directly all that much. Like, um, oddly, I mean, the idea that it's purely fascist and it's the exact same thing as, um, you know, other forms of authoritarianism. Even if you think the totalitarianism right. thesis kind of yeah, thing. I mean, I mean, and I do think I do think I'm one of the few Marxists who think there's some truth to the problems of totalitarianism, but it's using that term to like say they're all the same thing is highly misleading. Like I, I don't think communist China is the same thing as the USSR, and I don't think either one of them are quote unquote true socialism any more than I think Norway is. But you do have to look at how they developed. And I think, like, one of the things Marxists get addicted to, and, you know, you see this in the Frankfurt School, too, is simple typologies that we can just label. So, OK, well, that's state capitalist. Done. End of discussion. I don't have to deal with any other part of it. Or that's state socialist. Done. Or that's, you know, Bonapartist. And, you know, I, I you know, talk about Bonapartism all the time. But there are different kinds of Bonapartism. Not all Bonapartism is even necessarily regressive, whatever that means. You know, it's not necessarily quote unquote bad. Um, it's just not. It's not an optimal development in time. So you kind of have to deal with that with the Frankfurt School, too. So I guess like like I would tell your listeners, it's worth pursuing. It's worth thinking about it. It's worth really dealing with the problems that it presents about domination in our, our current capitalist way and the way we experience the world. But you can't make a politics out of it and you need to do, re you need to do other kinds of political economy, sociology, um, hell, fucking read, you know, bourgeois economy and stuff too. Like, like you just need to know a lot more than this will give you on its own. Thank you for joining us on this special bonus episode of the Radical Thoughts Podcast. As mentioned before, if you're interested in what we're discussing here, you can learn more from Varn on the Zero Books channel, where he appears on the Pop the Left show. And you can also find him on Mortal Science through Emancipation Network, as well as through the 18th Brumaire reading series appearing on Alpha 2 Omega, which is also on the Emancipation Network. hope you enjoyed this episode and found it worthwhile. Remember that next month we'll be reading Liberalism and Democracy by Norberto Bobbio, so check that out if you want to read ahead. Radical Thoughts is not associated with Verso Books in any way. It is an independent project. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. <laughs>